We're all there, 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at the first verse. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was cake baked on the coals and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came there unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What do you do here, Elijah? And he said, I have been jealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What do you do here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, that you anoint, uh, yeah, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael 
shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have me, yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. Won't you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. God, we ask that you anoint my lips to properly minister from this text this morning. And God, we ask that you anoint me to say what you'd have me say. God, anoint our hearts, Lord, that we may receive what you'd have us receive this morning. And God, please receive all of the praise and glory and honor. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to preach to you a message today titled, God is there to feed me. Uh, Whenever the whole world around us seems to be falling apart, God is still there to provide for us, even in our darkest hour. And that sounds a little cliche, but the fact of the matter is the world that we live in is pretty dark and desperate. Um... Just so we understand where we're at in this text, the book of First and Second Kings have a very complicated history about them. Um, they were originally one book whenever they were first written centuries ago. Um, we don't really know who the author of First and Second Kings is. It's a dilemma that we have with a few books in the Bible. We just don't know at the end of the day who the author is. They never make themselves known in the books. But many scholars and historians have contended the prophet Jeremiah to be a likely candidate. And the reason for this is because um, even though the books of First and Second Kings are, at the end of the day, historical documents, these are historical books, there is this narrative undertone in these books, if you will. And that undertone is that Israel has forsaken their covenant with God. The book of 2 Kings ends with the Israelites going into Babylonian captivity, a time that the Lord would call Jeremiah to prophesy against Israel uh, before and during that particular captivity. And many believe, and this is just in theory, we don't know this for sure, that if Jeremiah is the author of 1 and 2 Kings, if he did, if he was the one who compiled these records together, that he did so for the sake of proving to Israel that they, why exactly they were in Babylon. That the Babylonian captivity was a judgment against the Jewish people because these people had forsaken their relationship with God in exchange uh, for idol worship, for idolatry. And Jeremiah, if he is the author, is proving that by showing them at first glance their history and how they got to where they were by the end of Second Kings. Um, the book of First Kings uh, begins on a bitter note. It begins literally with the death of King David, Israel's godliest and most consecrated king. There will never be another king as godly as David other than Jesus Christ himself when he returns. Uh, the greatest king in Israel's history has died. That's, that's, that's how First Kings begins. And already there is this air of grief whenever you read about that. Because in essence, it all just goes downhill from there. After David dies, his son Solomon ascends to the throne. And Solomon is, he is a far cry from the worst case scenario. He is, he is not a bad king on a 
political level, he does very good. He's very abundant in wealth and wisdom. But Solomon would engage in probably the worst act of polygamy ever recorded in the Bible with over 1,000 concubines of wives, which was strictly prohibited from God himself to do. Um, in, in, this, in this disgraceful act of polygamy and marrying so many women, he would welcome many women from many different nations who worshipped many different gods. And that would introduce the nation of Israel to idolatry. And this decision of his would affect many generations after him in the worst way possible. And Solomon was a blessed man. The Lord blessed him even in spite of his sin against God. He got to oversee the completion of the temple of God, which for that time would have been considered one of the many wonders of the world. The God's temple, the temple of God, or as some call it, the temple of Solomon, would have been destroyed whenever the Babylonians came to invade Jerusalem. Um, but that's aside the point. After Solomon dies... His son Rehoboam ascends to the throne of Israel, and during Rehoboam's reign, another man named Jeroboam comes back after an extended period of exile from Israel. And long story short, because I don't want to dwell on this, this in essence is whenever literally the country that God established splits in half into two separate countries. Jeroboam uh, wants to continue in idolatry and in doing so through a great act of rebellion claims the top half of Israel, what we now have in this chapter as the northern kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam would stay in Jerusalem worshiping God in the southern kingdom that would now be called Judah. Um, none of the northern kingdom, none of their kings would ever serve God. And Judah would have a few kings that would serve God, but even then Judah, which is essentially the, uh, the better younger brother of Israel, still has a very low standard because those good kings were uh, few and far between. These had become two separate nations who regularly worshipped idols and progressively forsake their covenant with Jehovah. And if I have the dates right, even though all, many kings would forsake God and continually lead Israel and Judah astray, we're going to focus on one king this morning. And if I have the dates right, this would have happened about 60 years after the kingdoms split in half. Now, during this time in Israel, Judah would actually have a pretty decent king, Jehoshaphat who despite his own faults and despite compromises of his own that the Bible makes very apparent to us, he was still pretty ideal for the nation of Judah on a spiritual level. When it came down to it, Jehoshaphat was willing to give the conflicts that he could not solve himself to God. He would give his problems to the Lord. He was, again, despite his faults, a pretty ideal king. He was a spiritual man, and he at least acknowledged God as the true head of the nation of Judah. This is not a luxury that the northern kingdom would have had at this time. But as a matter of fact, one of Israel's worst and most evil kings, Ahab, had ascended to the throne by this time. Ahab would marry that woman, Jezebel, um, who would manipulate Ahab and, um, well, before I go into that, Jezebel, uh, whose reputation is very well known throughout history, especially Jewish history, 
Whenever the Apostle John would write to the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation, in one of the seven churches that he writes to, the dialogue, and this is centuries after the events of First and Second Kings take place, the dialogue he uses, and I paraphrase to one of the churches, is, I don't like how you have embraced that woman Jezebel. And while there is a slim chance that that is actually referring to a specific person, just about uh, every commentary you go to, any preacher that you listen to will agree that that's more so a pseudonym comparing Jezebel's influence on Ahab and the northern kingdom with modern demonic influence in the church. This was a very evil woman. She was a foreign woman who came from a foreign land and she worshipped a foreign god, Baal. Um, she would manipulate Ahab into accepting her God and essentially allowed Baal to become the God of Israel for her time. And to only further push that agenda, she would influence Ahab to put anybody who would not want to worship Baal, especially those who would rather worship Yahweh, especially the prophets, to death. And then out of nowhere, we meet Elijah the Tishbite. That's how the Bible introduces him. He comes out of nowhere. We don't know anything about his childhood or anything like that. Um, and really, there's nothing special about being a Tishbite either. Apparently, it's just some random little town, uh, I think, south of the Jordan River. But Elijah the Tishbite, out of nowhere, just comes onto the scene. All we know is that he is God's prophet. And Elijah approaches Jezebel and Ahab in the throne of the northern kingdom and prophesies to them, there will not be any rain in Israel until I say that there can be rain. That was the commission that God gave to Elijah. And Jezebel's reaction to that, in essence, is to basically put a hit out on Elijah. She wants him dead because he has humiliated her. And she doesn't really know you can say that he's a genuine prophet but the Lord calls Elijah to hide from Jezebel. And three years go by, and Israel is in a complete drought. It does not rain a single day for an extended period of three years. And at the end of that three years, the Lord calls Elijah to come out of hiding. And word gets to Ahab, um, the king of Israel at this time, that Elijah is back on the scene. And what ensues is just one of the most epic displays of faith in the Bible. If you've ever been a part of any church, at some point you're going to have to hear somebody preach about what's been called the showdown at Mount Carmel because it's just one of the most epic moments in the Old Testament. Ahab rides out on a horse to meet Elijah and then looking down at Elijah when he meets him. I mean, there's just it almost reminds you of some spaghetti Western from the 60s because there's just this image of a desert wasteland and the evil king is riding out to meet the prophet of God. And he meets him and looking down at Elijah from his horse, he says, and I believe the dialogue is this is the troubler of Israel. I mean, it's so epic. And what happens next is just continually epic. Elijah challenges Ahab. He says, I want you to gather. And he doesn't say a fraction. He doesn't say half. He says, gather all, every last prophet of Baal in Israel and have them all meet me at Mount Carmel. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I've read 
that some historians believe that Mount Carmel was apparently, according to whatever religion uh, Jezebel was a part of, Mount Carmel was, I guess, Bell's favorite resting place. I mean, it was just Bell's place to be was Mount Carmel. So that specific place, if that's true or not, that place we do know for sure. Elijah says to Ahab, gather all of the prophets of Baal and have them come and meet me at Mount Carmel. And Ahab does just that. He gathers all of the prophets of Baal. They all go to Mount Carmel. And the challenge that Elijah ushers to them is very simple. They make an altar to their God. Elijah will make an altar to his God. And whoever's God, whoever's God answers their offering by fire, that God is the God. And for the record, Elijah's name literally means the Lord is God. So Elijah builds his altar. The prophets of Baal build their altar. The false prophets do just about anything to garner a reaction from their God. They dance around their altar very frantically. They begin to physically harm themselves. They become so desperate to garner a reaction that just never comes. Elijah builds his altar. He puts the sacrifice on his altar. He builds a moat around the altar. He puts water in the moat. And he simply prays to God. And God strikes his altar with fire. And by this point, the Israelites, many of whom were present to watch this showdown happen, are reminded, as Elijah's very name says, that the Lord is God. And then after this happens, Elijah has all of the prophets of Baal gathered together, and he has all of them executed by the sword. So what's the point of telling you all of that? Well, first of all, just to let you know that what, what happened leading to where we are. And secondly, just so you know, this is not the Israel that David was king over. Israel is such a different place at this point. This is not the country that God initially instituted many generations before this. This is not the same place. Israel has literally sold herself out from so many idols. It's a complete... Um, it's a completely alien line of thinking uh, to believe that Israel would get to the point to where they are right now. We look at Israel right now and we would compare it today with a, with a place, I don't know, some country today, probably like America, that just doesn't value God as much as it once did. But regardless of whatever happens... God is still alive, regardless of who's not worshiping God. He's still God. And by doing things like this, he's still calling people into relationship with him. However, what happens after the Mount Carmel, which is where we are today in our text, is interesting. Ahab, and for the record, before this happened, Elijah, and we're familiar with that, with that phrase, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. After this great showdown and after many Israelites uh, would forsake the prophets of Baal, Elijah gives word and it begins to rain in Israel once more. And Ahab goes back to his palace and he informs Jezebel. And this shows you really just who's really in charge of Israel at this point. It's implied, I skipped over a lot of smaller details leading up to this because there's there's more to what I want to tell you than just the historical background, but there are many little 
moments of dialogue that are recorded for us that imply that Ahab and Jezebel ruled Israel in fear, that the Jewish people in the northern kingdom submitted to their authority because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. They were complete dictators, really. And the way that Ahab approaches Jezebel, it shows you really who's been in charge this entire time. It hasn't been the actual king of Israel who ideally should be the one in charge above everybody else, ideally under God himself. But it's clear to us here at this point, the fact that Ahab feels the need to report to Jezebel about what has happened. Jezebel has really manipulated her way as the chief officer, the top person in Israel at this point. And you think about that because had Ahab just said no to Jezebel's plea to kill those who wanted to worship the Lord God, had he just said no to that, we would in no way be in the position that we're in right now. But because Ahab was a weak king, he was an evil king because he was submissive to Jezebel and not God. Um, We are where we are today. And Ahab tells Jezebel everything that just happened. And Jezebel, and we hear the phrase regularly throughout the Old Testament that as the Lord lives, and Jezebel's response to the showdown at Mount Carmel is basically her own version of as the Lord lives. She basically says, um, if Elijah is not dead by tomorrow, I I don't know what to do. Elijah has officially become to the government of Israel, the prophet of God, has become public enemy number one to Israel. And Elijah receives word of this, and fear overtakes him. The prophet of God, who, for the record, has one of the greatest reputations out of all the people you read about in the Bible, is now afraid and is running for his life. The first time that Elijah fled from Jezebel, the Lord actually called him to do that. He didn't receive that call this time to run. He did it on his own volition because he was overcome with fear. He was overcome with anxiety. There are a few things that I want to to tell us about. There are a few things that I want to talk to you about this morning. One thing I want you to know is that trials and tribulations are real. Trials and tribulations are just as real as God himself um, we like to quote that Bible verse a lot, Isaiah fifty four seventeen, or at least the first part of it. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And that's the truth. It's true. It's, it's in the Bible. But that verse says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. It doesn't say that there will never be any weapons that form against you. And while you and I don't really have the issues that Elijah specifically is having to deal with right now. I mean, we don't have to really worry about our, the leader of our country. It's not like Joe Biden is out there to kill all of the Christians right now. We don't have Elijah's problem right now. But at the same time, we have a worse adversary than Ahab and Jezebel. The devil is after your soul. The devil wants to kill you. He is after your soul. He has far greater influence than Jezebel ever could in her life. And he's out to get you. You're a child of God and he does not want that to be. 
Peter would write to the churches in Asia Minor. He would say, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around as a roaring lion, seeking whomever he may devour. Satan is after your soul. The most powerful adversary you could possibly ask for as it pertains to you in and of yourself is after you. He wants you to be lost for all of eternity. But the good news is this. While we do have a great adversary, we have an even greater advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. John would write in the New Testament and he would say, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose finished work is more than enough to not only save you, but to keep you into your relationship with God, to preserve your faith. Look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. The blood of Jesus Christ is not only significant enough to save your life, but it is significant enough to keep your life exactly where it needs to be. And literally all you need to do is continually express faith in Jesus Christ. Just to continually believe that His finished work is enough. That's all God asks of you. The weapons, while they may form against you, the Scriptures tell us that they will not prosper. Another thing I want you to know is that God has called you and I for His purposes and for His glory. Um, Elijah, as we know him in the Bible, his life is totally brought to us in the context of God's will. Obviously, with the exception of this passage that we just read, aside from this, Elijah is always being God's man for God's hour. He is always doing what God calls him to do. He's always saying what God calls him to say. Even in the midst of great opposition, Elijah, who was living in the Old Covenant, he, who was living under law, is one of, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest people of faith in the Bible that you'll ever get to read about. Um, he is simply God's man being used by God in God's timing. And yet we see in this passage that he is just a man. He's a man, he's a human being like you and I. And I think that moments like this kind of spit in the face of this modern idea of what we have uh, in America, what we would call the prophet of God. A prophet of God is somebody who is sent by God, and this is just as it's brought to us throughout the Bible, with a specific message for a specific people for a specific time. Um, and essence that's who a prophet of god is a prophet is not a superhero a prophet of god is a human being just like you and i elijah thinks like a man he feels like a man and even though he's walking after god he's walking after god as a man and although it's not ideal looking at a prophet of god do what elijah is doing right now in chapter 19 running away in fear allowing his emotions to dictate his decisions it is simply what happens it's in times like this where we need to remind ourselves that the bible is more than a storybook but this is real life talking about real people who behave as real people behave whenever things like this do happen even if it's not what they should be doing Elijah is a man, and yet the Lord still sustains. Yeah, the Lord still sustains him, even whenever he runs. God knows how to sustain us when, whenever we walk in faith. This moment that Elijah is going through—it's not ideal. I mean, 
you know, in studying this passage of Scripture, I thought to myself exactly how how the modern church would, would react if Elijah was going through something like this today. Um, especially whenever you have people like the Word of Faith movement who basically idolize their faith in a, in a very wrong way. They would probably say to somebody like Elijah, oh, you mean to tell me that you just believed God for 450 false prophets and now you can't even believe Him for two people? But the fact is, what, what Elijah's going through right now, we would call that today a major depressive episode. Where basically, whenever his emotions have completely just overtaken him, and he's allowing his emotions, he's allowing his despair, he's allowing his fear to dictate what he's doing and not God. And while there is, there, self-pity does have a lot to do with what Elijah is doing right now, while that does play a part in it, there's just more to it than that. You've got to keep in mind where Elijah's at at this time. As I mentioned earlier, this is not the nation that God instituted many years before. This is not the nation that David was ruling over. Israel's God is not Yahweh. Israel's God is literally Baal. Israel's ruler is Jezebel and Ahab, some of the worst uh, rulers in Israel's history. And this, the government of Israel has singled Elijah out for his life. This is where he's at right now. So even if it's not really justifiable what he's doing at the end of the day, it's odd and yet at the same time relatable why he's doing what he's doing. But God knows how to sustain him. God understood that Elijah needed time to rest. And in this passage of Scripture, the Lord would... Uh, give Elijah rest and he would give Elijah food and water he would restore Elijah's body and mind during this time of depression God would do that God alone would do that and the last thing I want you to know is that God plus zero is always the majority uh, we hear that phrase a lot that you plus God is always the majority and that's, that's true. I mean, wherever God is, that's where the majority is. But even if nobody is worshiping God, even if nobody is serving God, that doesn't make God any less powerful than He would be if everyone in the world were worshiping Him and following after Him. If everyone in the world displayed faith in Jesus Christ right now, compared to a time, let's say, where nobody in the world expressed faith in Jesus Christ, that doesn't affect God at all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In many generations where no telling how many people served Him to times like this where it seemed like nobody was serving Him. Elijah would, in despair, say to God, I'm the only one that there is left. That's what it seemed like to him. But God was exactly the same. This was the same God who ruled, ruled over Israel when David was king. It's the exact same God who's taking care of Elijah right now 450 false prophets versus one god called individual if we had the faith that we talk about sometimes we would look at those statistics and say well the battle is already over i mean if god is in it but the fact is through our own eyes if we look at this through our own understanding i mean elijah i mean what a man of faith earlier i mentioned that by this time in the southern kingdom of Judah, Jehoshaphat would have been king of that nation. Jehoshaphat 
was faced with a serious political and even more than political, he was faced with a war dilemma. The nation of Judah during his reign, word got to him that three armies were surrounding his nation. And his reaction to that is just about as good as it could have been. Instead of grabbing any weapon, instead of readying any chariot for any of his military, Jehoshaphat in the southern kingdom, his initial instinct is to call the entire nation of Judah to fast and to pray over this dilemma because Jehoshaphat understands that this issue with three armies is not something that he can handle. He understands that Judah does not have the might to face down three armies And if he does try to face down three armies, Judah will be overthrown. So he has the entire assembly of his nation seek the Lord about this. And in the congregation of Jerusalem one day, a random prophet, we don't know the prophet's name, maybe it is somebody else who is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, but as it stands, we just don't know who this prophet was, but we just know that, but we remember what this prophet said. This prophet would stand up in the assembly of Jerusalem, and he would say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The battle is not yours, but God's. And the Lord would take care of those three armies for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat would not have to send a single single person into battle over this dilemma because he trusted God to fight his battles. And to those of us who are expressing faith in Christ, to those of us who, if we do that, by definition, are in eternal relationship with the living God, God will fight our battles for us. God fought Elijah's battle for him. Ahab and Jezebel were not eternal. They were not gods themselves. They would one day return to the earth just as they came from it. Ahab would meet a grisly end And Jezebel would perish herself. These people that the Lord told Elijah to anoint at the end of this chapter, Jehu. Jehu would become the king over Israel. And he would be a better king than Ahab. He would be used of God to overthrow Ahab's reign. This other person that is mentioned, Hazael to be king over Syria. Under Hazael's reign over Syria, the Assyrians would basically become an empire. He would become a very mighty ruler. He would even rule over certain parts of Israel. And this last person, Elisha, would be Elijah's successor. So while Elijah was alone in the cave, while he was alone under that little juniper tree in the wilderness, The Lord knew what was going to happen. None of this caught God off guard. The Lord had already prepared for what was to come afterwards. The Lord had already prepared a way to take care of Ahab and Jezebel. And although the rest of Israel's history would be pretty grim, leading them to the point to where they would be brought into captivity by the Babylonian Empire many generations later, for this one time in the midst of this entire history about Israel, brief history about 
Israel's ungodliness and their rebellion against God, we see the Lord of Israel personally taking care of one man. Um, the Apostle Paul would write in Philippians 4.13, and it's, you know, we all know it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yeah, there, there are some people who, who misuse that verse. I mean, that verse doesn't make me a superhero. But Paul writing that from a Roman imprisonment, it's a verse of contentment. It's a verse that says, whether I am rich and increased with goods in Christ, I can be content. Or whether I am writing this from a prison cell in Christ, I can be content. It doesn't matter exactly what situation that I'm going through. In Christ, there is contentment for the child of God. Even if the entire world around you seems to be falling apart, there is contentment, there is a rest, there is a rejuvenating, if you will, a spiritual rejuvenating in Christ. And if Paul can say that from a prison cell, then you and I can say it, walking with Jesus day by day. So, my question to you is, you know, are we exactly where the Lord wants us to be? Are you in the will of God? And if you're not, you could be running from the will of God. God isn't going to forsake you for that. God didn't forsake Elijah because Elijah had ran from Jezebel. I don't know what would have happened if Elijah stayed. I don't know what would have happened. We don't know that because it's just not what happened. But what we do know is that even as Elijah was overcome with fear, as he was overcome with this depression of his, the Lord still looked after him. The Lord was still there to feed him. And after the Lord had personally ministered to Elijah, the Bible says that Elijah got up and he went to do what the Lord had called him to do. And that's where we leave off on this chapter, is this man of God going to do what the Lord has called him to do. So you and I can be content today, knowing that God is with us, and regardless of whatever we're going through, that God is there to feed us when we need Him to. Amen? Amen. All right, won't you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for this day, God. And we thank You for what You've taught us through Your Word, Lord. Even if I haven't properly ministered it, Lord, this morning, we're trusting that You can make these truths in Your Word real to us, God. God, I ask that You protect all of us, God, throughout this week. Continually minister jesus christ and his finished work to us in one way or another god we can rest easy today knowing that because of what jesus has done for us at the cross and because of that eternal covenant that everlasting covenant that we have been invited into because of christ and his finished work god that we can rest easy knowing that regardless of whether we may find ourselves whether we are submissive to your will or rebellious to your will that you will be there to sustain our hearts god and to put us back on the right track god and even when we are in your will we can be content in knowing that all things do work together for good to them who love god and are called according to his purpose lord we thank you in jesus name we pray amen